Hello again, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Fourth State Podcast. I'm Marty Duran. I'm Bob Smetana. And we're going to be helping you think about the news. This is today, uh, Wednesday, February 21st. And uh, first thing this morning, we got news that the famed evangelist uh, Billy Graham has passed away, uh, I guess sometime during the night or early in the morning, because it hit the wires uh, pretty early, I'd say about 7.30 or so. Um, lots of complexity involving him, but Bob brought up the fact that uh, Billy Graham died on the 53rd anniversary of the death of Malcolm X. Uh, I don't really think that there's a relationship there, and I don't think they were good buddies or anything, but I think that's a, an interesting coincidence for the calendar anyway. Um, but Billy Graham is, uh, I mean, larger than life. I, you know, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of eras that I think are coming to a close with him. There's some people that still do crusades, but nobody's doing global-type yeah. crusades. Uh, there's still people who influence the president, but I don't think we're going to see another pastor to the presidents uh, like Graham was. And I don't know that we're ever going to see a single religious figure in America that has the weight that Billy Graham did for several decades, uh, from the fifties on through probably at least the seventies and that the pre pre the preprint the pre-release print was bigger, larger-than-life figure, and kind of a Rorschach test when you think about evangelicals, because he's got so many. He has, there's Billy Graham, the friend of presidents, mm-hmm. Billy Graham, the fiery young preacher, Billy Graham, the uh, you know evangelist just talking about the love of God, Billy Graham, the let's derail Kennedy in the 60s, mm-hmm. Billy Graham, bails out Martin Luther King, and then says, yeah, but kind of calm down after he gets <laughs> arrested in Birmingham. Yeah. You know, Billy Graham, who uh, who was an end-of-the-world kind of guy. It's the last generation. One of his focuses time. was always on the end of time. End times. Uh, I, I, I never listened to a ton of Billy Graham's preaching, and so I don't really remember the specifics of his sermons but I'm currently reading a biography uh, of Graham called A Prophet with Honor. And Mm -hmm. at this point, about 200 pages in, I think, and I highly recommend it as it stands so far. Um, But he did take an approach that he developed beginning early in his ministry where he would open his sermons with kind of the state of the times. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was always, for years and years and years, it was always about creeping communism and communism was the mortal enemy of the church and of God and uh, so there was a lot of, he would he would capture people's attention with things that he felt like were signs of the near coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. Then he would preach the gospel. Then you'd have these masses of people streaming down the aisles or the steps or whatever in, yeah. the, in the stadiums. Uh, so there was, and a lot of his books, The Four Horsemen, I mean, there were a lot yes, of yes. his books that had to do with how to be saved, how to come to peace with God. And on the other end of it, how to be ready for the return of Christ, or get ready for the return of Christ. Yeah, there's a, I think the Guardian, one of the UK papers, has a long essay from a, a American professor who's at the University of Washington. I think he's out, out in, He's a professor out in Washington State who basically says Graham's fascination with the end times kept him from being involved too much in sort of public policy sort of things. Mm-hmm. So he was. Racism is bad, racism is sinful, do we want to change laws to, uh, but if you say do you want to change laws to address racism or poverty, or mm-hmm. uh, no, that was that was too far. Mm-hmm. So that his, his 
fascination with the end times and and idea that that coming Christ was um, imminent mm-hmm. affected his public policy. <clears throat> there was also, uh, I think, it's interesting. Uh, of course, nobody's perfect, you know, so we're not going to hagiographize anybody here. But for uh, for decades spent in the public eye. Um, I think there was a headline, maybe this was probably an opinion piece in the Washington Post. I think they called him, they said he had invincible innocence. I mean, dude, that's strong language. Invincible innocence. And, um, but if you read back through his life, you find that he struggled with a lot of things. So he's, he's, he's always, he's going to be talked about today and for the next few days about taking down the ropes that segregated his crusades. Yes. What's not going to be talked about as much is that he went along with segregation for a while, even after he made public statements against it, when he came down to the South, if there were, if the organizers had decided there would be segregation in the seating, then he wouldn't fight it. Yeah. And then, I mean, it did, we're not talking about this went on for, you know, 20 years. We're talking about it went on for a while. And then he made the decision that he would no longer have his crusades segregated. And I bring that up to say that he went through a growth process mm-hmm. and a maturing process that was very public. He didn't he didn't have the opportunity of preaching at the thirty member church and getting all the edges knocked off. And then he made a public appearance and became a crusade star, for lack of a better term. Uh, he he sprang into the public eye very quickly through I guess it was YWAM Youth of the Mission or yeah. something like a that. Youth for Christ. Youth for Christ. As one of their staff evangelists. <clears throat> and he and several others would dress in loud, you know, kind of flamboyant clothing and loud ties. And um, he also wasn't well received all the time in the areas when he went to do preliminary work. So if he went to another country or if he went to a city mm-hmm. in the United States and they were pulling together all the pastors in the city, it wasn't always, hey, Billy Graham's coming to town. It was sometimes we don't want Billy Graham to come to town. <laughs> And so either he or one of his team members had to go and convince the people, uh, being the pastors and the other religious leaders, that, yeah, you know, we'll work with you. We're not coming yes. in here to destroy your churches. We want to help grow your churches. So there, there are a lot of things that aren't going to be gone back to historically because the people covering these are so young, with the exception of a guy that you found who wrote an obituary in the New York Times. Yes, well, so the New York Times got a great long obituary, but this is this fantastic line at the bottom. Uh, Alvin Krebs, a Times obituary writer who died in 2002, <laughs> contributed reporting. So, because Graham was so, because he's so famous, right. people had, I mean, Christianity Today, for example, has a, a whole, like, basically special digital issue right. on him. So, I mean, when I worked for the Tennessean for quite a while, and the, uh, we, had a, we had Billy Graham uh, obituary ready to go. And it was constantly being updated. Updated every, every time he got sick. Yeah, because on Billy Graham watch. Where's yeah. the obit? Where, yeah. What file is it in? Because yeah. it probably went from several different kinds of content sharing. It sure, went from probably a paper version to mm-hmm. in uh, you know, and you wouldn't hate to be, you know if it was on a floppy disk and you tried to use it right now, you wouldn't have been able to do it. So right. keep moving it. Um, so Kathy Grossman's got a real long one. You USA today. She's the former religion writer for USA today. She okay. probably had that written. Updated it and sent it. So yeah, she lived to see the uh, the day that it would be published. She lived to see the day that Mr. Krebs did not apparently. Yes, he outlived <laughs> some of the people who reported on him. Um, but his interesting. It's interesting his relationship to the press. Is. So 
you would not know who Billy Graham is without William Randolph Hearst. Correct. In the 40s when he was starting off, he was... And he had his eight-week... Imagine that, eight-week evangelist crusade. Yeah. And, and the famous line is, Puff Graham. Yeah, yeah. So Hearst was like, you got to do some pieces on Graham, and that really launched his career. So he was... I mean, he's. But Hearst apparently... Of course, he was in it for the money. He's a newspaper publisher, sure. and he knew Graham was getting popular. But apparently he had a... Uh, he had a, a sympathy, especially for the Youth for Christ part of it, the, the young people being taught a better way to live and stay out of trouble and all that kind of stuff. Hearst had, had kind of a soft spot for that. And so that's how they kind of started paying attention to Billy Graham to begin with. And then as like, the Los Angeles Crusade and all these yes. things came to pass, it was like, we're going to make him a national star. Yeah, they made him a national star. Yeah. They made a national star. <laughs> and then Graham was great on camera, mm-hmm. handsome charming. He did stay, he wasn't a um, Elmer Gantry-like figure. He's not like, if you think of like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. So, yes. So I think it's important, the Billy Graham rules, okay, which originally weren't called the Billy Graham rules. They were called the the Compton Compact or something, because that's where they developed these. Yes. And it wasn't one rule of I won't be in a room alone with a woman. There were like five things and they all had to do with the integrity of the people who led the ministry. Yes, yes. And the reason for those rules weren't because they felt like it would make them somehow more holy, or even really that they felt like it was an obedience to God. This is how we're going to express our obedience to God. Yeah. It was to demonstrate that they wanted their, what became, I guess, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. They wanted their ministries yes. to be without reproach in a time when, evangelists were running off with a love offering and getting caught in bed with women and all these kinds of things. So these rules were to stabilize and give an, uh, an integrity to their organization so that people wouldn't look at Billy yes. Graham and whoever Cliff Barrows when they came to town and think, oh, well, here's another Elmer Gantry or here's another crooked you know, uh, evangelist. So they instituted we would today call them policies. They instituted these policies for the organization that they all agreed to and would hold each other accountable to, to prevent them from falling off the cliff and bringing damage both to the name of Christ and to what they were doing. Yeah, so they had four rules, basically four rules in this this Montecito Montecito Compact. Is that what it's called? I think they put it together while they were... That's right. They were in California when they put it together. Modesto. So there's four rules. One is they were operating with financial transparency. So you can see... In fact, just until recently, the Billy Graham Association was a um, was not organized as a church. It was organized as a nonprofit. So mm-hmm. you could you could see all their who made what, yeah. when, you see how much you made. That's changed right recently, the last couple of years. Last couple of years, uh, avoid even the appearance of sexual immorality. Avoid criticizing other pastors and other churches, mm-hmm. and be painstakingly honest in all publicity. So they wouldn't puff up how many people who showed. Right. They wouldn't puff up how many people were converted. Right. They just said, this is what happened. You know, they were, they were so it seems to me that only one of those rules really gets trotted out every now yes. and then and talked about. Well, because I think that is the, yes. I think that's because the people have taken that Graham rule, and now that you have women in leadership roles, mm-hmm. it's, it's used. So, I mean, lots of Americans, the Washington posted a story on this, and while lots of Americans don't want to have dinner or drinks with a colleague of the opposite sex. Sure. They think that's wrong. Uh, the meetings with some of the opposite sex alone, if you, if, but if you never meet with your boss, mm-hmm. there's research on leadership in evangelical groups, for example, mm-hmm. from, 
professor at Wheaton College. They found that if you never have meeting alone with your boss, that it kept women from reaching leadership roles in institutions. Mm-hmm. So your boss is, uh, you know... Your well, what were the other three, then? The, the other three were what? The other the, three rules. The other three, but financial so transparency. That's the whole point. That's yes. the whole point. It, it has that to one. Yes. That one rule is like the Billy Graham rule. Yes. There is no Billy Graham rule. There were the four rules. rules. And, we, and people ignore those rules. That's the, that's the point. That's yes, the point. They, they isolate the one that really does support other points that they're trying to yes. make. and it hurts the, the others. But, yeah, the honesty. And so some people who would promote the Billy Graham rule, and I'm using scare quotes here, basically ignore the other three, oh, three yes. oh, yeah. that to Graham and his team were equally important. Yes, exactly. It wasn't like this one's the most important. Yes. They were equally important to establish an integrity that really did stay with the company the ministry. The ministry. All the, and, and until I think the ministry too. When, when Graham was wrong, I think his his relationship, he was very close to Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said some negative things about Jews and other mm-hmm. folks that were found in the, so when, you know, during Watergate, mm-hmm. there's actually two things during Watergate. CT did an interview with him during Watergate, which he said, this is bad. There's too much money in politics. Yeah. The way we're operating is wrong. So he admitted that, but, they got him on tape saying things he shouldn't have been saying. Yeah, that were very, very. But he impressive. he thought we're in private conversations. We're in private Nixon, conversations. That Nixon was taping him. Yeah, they came out first. He was like, I don't remember that. And then they're like, Here's the tape. Wow. And when he, you know, like any other human being, he probably would say, Well, I don't quite remember that. And then yeah. he was like, Oh, that's me. So when he, when he was <clears> caught <throat> doing something that was not up to his own standards, up to his own standards, yeah. he yeah. said, I'm sorry, and yeah. I think he regretted. His uh, some of his political activity. When some in some, I think I'd agree with that. And in some areas, he was actually before the rest of evangelicalism. Um, Like I remember a specific conversation. Maybe this was in his column that he had had in the newspaper. Somebody was asking about basically husband and wife relationships. Well, Ruth was a very strong personality. She was. Uh, she was not a pushover. Um, she did not hesitate to tell him what she thought when yes. she thought it and, if, you know, whatever. Um, but there was, I remember this one particular column where he was essentially saying, your wife is not a doormat for you to walk yes. over. You're, you don't get to treat her any way you want to. She's basically creating the image of God and she's your teammate. I mean, those are, that's not his yes. word, but that was the implication. Now, for the 1940s or 50s, when that would have been written, that would have been a revolutionary concept yes. for a lot of pastors who really didn't have a view of their wives as any kind of an equal, and like even in the eyes of God. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, I think it's it's really, um, his wife is Presbyterian. He's Southern Baptist. Yeah. They, I think that, that, that the you know, his family was, uh, were no pushovers. Yeah. And, and his kids are no pushovers. I mean, right. And pushovers, right. his kids, it's interesting <laughs> that his kids, uh, and his grandkids, mm-hmm. some of them in the ministry, you know, Ruth. Uh, but even the ones that are not in the ministry, they reflect a really strong sense of self. Self, yes. They're very self confidence and they disagree a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think that's interesting yeah. amongst, I mean, you, you do have, is it just three kids? I think there's two, two four, boys. There? I think there's, there's okay. more than three. But now and there's then, a couple of grandkids, yeah, a couple that, of are, grandkids that are yeah. interviewed periodically. And, you, and there's not always disagreement. No. I mean, there's not always agreement between them. Okay, so 
Uh, so another thing, yeah. Patricia Cornwall, you know that, that yeah. author? Yeah. So Cornwell. Yes, Cornwell. So, uh, I did not know this till today, but this is a little tidbit. She apparently, her mother was a big fan of the Grahams. Yes. So much so that they moved to the town that the Grahams lived in. But her parents had troubles. Okay. And uh, and uh, Ruth Graham apparently intervened to really ba- basically help her out, turn wow. her life around. So she talked about how her Ruth Graham, you know, wow. basically changed her life. Did was she going to write a biography? She of, wrote a biography of, of Ruth. That's yeah. right. Of so Ruth. You think that's right. That's yeah. You know, the, case, the crime writer also wrote this biography. Of yeah, her. and and the uh, the biography that I referenced of Billy Graham, a prophet with honor. Uh, I think the author's William Martin. He's yeah. not a believer, so yeah. I mean, he's and, uh, he was and a historian. Really I, one, think. Uh, I think it's just as am the one he wrote. Wait, I should not say he's not a believer. He may be. He's he wasn't an evangelical writer. Yes, no, he was not. Yeah, so, he was more of a historian. And then there's um um. Oh, just as I am, which is the one he wrote. Yes, with Jerry Jenkins. Yeah. Now it'll be interesting the to see, see who. I would be interested to see whose legacy is um, who has a longer impact in American culture. Is it going to be Graham? Will it be Norman Vincent Peale, who's mm-hmm. got a lot of, you know? Yeah. Will it be Martin Luther King? Yeah. Which of those preachers of the kind of you know? And there would be. Mid, there would probably be a little bit of overlap between Peel and Graham as far oh, as their positive approach. Yes, yes, sometimes, yes. although Graham was could be harsh. Yes. Um, yeah, I think there is that, but there's there's overlap and so, not as much, but there's a little overlap between King and Graham. Yes. But King or was Peele much more on the um, uh, on the justice side of yes, things, yes. whereas Graham was more on the ultimate justice side. Yes. Of it. God's going to take care of everything. Yes, yes. And King would have been more. Well, God wants us to take care of some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then, yeah. So there's these. these I, I don't know if we'll have any kind of giant. What what they all had was mass market appeal. They were like the NBC, ABC, and CBS of yeah. But there was yeah. There wasn't the ability to divide the attention the way there yes. is now. Yeah. So you can't dominate. Yeah. All of the cable channels, all of the social media, all of the websites. You can't yeah. dominate that in the way that those three guys yes. were able to dominate for years of yeah. time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so sympathies to the, the family of Billy Graham, for sure. A uh, story that we want to talk about a little bit was in the Daily Beast recently. Uh, has to do with Newsweek, which... so. If you're as old as me, you can remember Newsweek and Time Magazine and U.S. News and World Report were the three major United States news magazines that were on every shelf, every rack. You could not go to the drugstore, the grocery store. You you certainly couldn't go to a bookstore, but a magazine rack, you could not walk through your day almost without seeing those three magazines and their covers, which were pretty famous, all of them, uh, for sale. And those were the biggest news weeklies in the United States, yeah, maybe in the history of the United States. So Newsweek was, Time was probably the biggest, I guess, in circulation. Newsweek would certainly be the second. The U.S. News World Report, which is my personal favorite, uh, was, was third. But Newsweek went through some turbulent times and was purchased at one time, I think, by the Daily Beast. Could have been. Back in the, the dot-com heyday, it was like, what in the world is going on? So Newsweek had financial difficulties yeah. because they were mostly print. I think the Daily Beast bought them, and then the Daily Beast apparently sold the brand to yes. another entity 
headed by a, gay, a guy named David Zhang. Is that correct? Yes. As far as you can tell? Yes. All right. So recently, uh, David Zhang's organization also owns a very popular news website called IB Times. Mm-hmm. And they also are involved with a school called Olivet University. Yes. And, and they're also tied to the Christian Post. Yes, maybe even own it. Maybe even own it. And there's right. a, whole, a whole, whole kind of scan of Christian websites around the world. Yes. So David Zhang, and it's J-A-N-G, is the head, head of a small group, or he may be the only head of the group. Of, he may be the group who owns these different uh, news outlets that have a very strong Christian orientation. And he's from, I think, South Korea. South Korea, yes. Uh, came here a number of years ago. <clears throat> and is the subject... Now, he's very secretive. He's like the Howard Hughes of Christian yeah. publishing. It's very hard to find anything about him. You know, like, doesn't show his face in public kind of thing. Doesn't get on the TV, none of that kind of thing. But he's very influential. And because of his mystery... Uh, and, be, and because it's really hard to find out some of the details about how they operate, there's been a lot of research into it, and they're not squeaky clean, apparently. But in this particular situation, Newsweek writers were doing something that was a little out of the ordinary. <laughs> Why don't you explain it? So, yeah, so just a little more of the background. Newsweek was sold to the Daily Beast in like 2010. Okay. 2012, it was sold to the IB Times. Okay. Uh, so it was out of print for a couple of years, went back in print. Um, so they were raided back in January. I does, New Week, does Newsweek yes. still have a print edition? They still have a print edition. I didn't know that. They have still a print edition. They went back on it. So they were raided in January by the Manhattan DA. Uh, that were looking at the ties between Newsweek and this college okay. uh, called Olivet University and whether or not there was uh, money laundering and ad fraud. So it turns out uh, a few weeks after that, there was some reporting on ad fraud. Basically, the federal government was spending money. The Consumer Protection Bureau, or one of the consumer protection arms of the, the um Federal government was spending money at IB Times on fake ads, junk ads. So these were bought ads. You would, you would, uh, they were getting, they were buying traffic for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Bought these ads at IB Times, which mm-hmm. trying to be fake ads. So they put the ads, but the traffic at the site was fake. They were oh, sending man. it on these loops yeah. to other sites and buying traffic, and uh, you know, you know. Tons of money they spent, and and the IB Times was um, fraudulent in their track. That's the claim. And so Newsweek reporters were reporting on that, and they were reporting on why the federal government had raided them. Okay. Or, or the, yeah, the federal, uh, the DA, and um, so the Newsweek reporters were reporting on the legal activity taken yes. against their sister, sister publication and their own and their own publication. Okay. Like the, <laughs> they are sitting in the newsroom, and here comes the Manhattan DA with wow. to raid their company. That's like a scene out of the newsroom. Yes. So, and it's, so there's been there's been a long question of secretive and perhaps fraudulent practices there. Okay. Long questions of them. So the the the, uh, the DA comes in, so they got to write about that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's and usually in a newsroom there is a. There is a 
firewall between first the advertisers mm-hmm. and the newsroom, and then there's you know news reporting and editorial, mm-hmm. like the the columns and op eds. Right, right. Um, but you know, if you are reporting, the editor decides what goes in the met, the the news. The news is reported. Right. The publisher handles the other part of it, and usually. Um, you know, the editor will go to the publisher and say, hey, we're going to do a story on, because it could impact the, right. the uh, company, but it's not, uh, you know, there's still, the editor makes that call. And if the publisher doesn't like what the editor does, he just fires the editor, or he or she fires them. Anyway, so in this case, they're reporting on what's going on at Newsweek, and so the owners decide they're going to fire these reporters and wow. editors. And, uh, and it turns out they were... Somebody at the company officials were taking, asking about confidential sources, and which they're not supposed, you know, supposed to do. And they were taking sections of the story and running it by outsiders. Now, sometimes if you're reporting a story and you you want you got a legal warrant, so you're talking right. to somebody, uh, you'll run it by to confirm them. So right. here's how we're quoting you, especially if it's like a lawyer, or here's how we're interpreting a law. Yeah, here's our interpreting law. Is yeah. this right? Yeah. Here's what we're gonna, you know. I've done that with... That's more verification. It's more for verification. Yeah. Is, is the way I've... Because sometimes when you write a story, you paraphrase part of it, and then mm-hmm. you have a quote. Mm-hmm. Is that my paraphrasing right? Mm-hmm. That's... that's. It doesn't happen all the time, but especially on kind of delicate, complicated things. It's not uncommon to say, how are you quoting me? Could I just see that? Sure. That, that's fine. It's uncommon to take the whole story and give to the, the subject of the story and have them... Critique yeah. it and give feedback. <laughs> so they were going to fire and uh, these folks, and now finally they published a story without without interference. And the particular story they published this time was uh, Olivet is bought some property in Dover, uh, New York, upstate New York, and they they actually got in trouble. They bought a, like kind of an old, I think it was an old mental health hospital that had asbestos. And they had people like from their community doing taking out asbestos. Oh wow! So if you look at OSHA from the year they bought it, the biggest one of the biggest OSHA violators in the country was Olivet University. Wow! So they had to pay big fines. Well, anyway, they were they've got this campus. They're trying to get breaks and tax breaks and construction permits. So they basically started running free ads in Newsweek about the town to try and influence them to, to wow. put kindly upon them. So that's one of the things they reported on them. So it's just that we'd like to provide you from uh, free, free, uh, full page ads. They ran ten full page ads worth about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So then, what happened to the reporters? Those reporters were some of them were fired, some were retained, uh, but the head editor was fired. In fact, the story they have here has a bylines people who are still there, and um, then. Uh, so was there an effort to suppress this? Story? Oh, it's first to suppress it, and then there was like we're gonna, then we're gonna fire you for reporting it. And uh, so for example, uh, Celeste Katz contributed reporting to this article before she was fired. <laughs> now the company had financial problems. I it, mean, it, it could be worse. She could be dead right in somebody's obituary. Yes, yes, that's true. So um, you know, a whole bunch of. You know, people went to work for them because they wanted to work for Newsweek, mm-hmm. which had this this uh, reputation. Uh, historic reputation is a great, great news source. I think it's uh, um, what's interesting now is the IB Times folks. So the person who owns Newsweek is head to, is married to the president of this university, 
and now they're just going to be like we're we're working together and it's mm-hmm. hand in glove pretty much. Yeah, it's uh, but it's really it's really these are all you know. If there's a problem with the story, mm-hmm. the publisher might come to the editor and said, "Your story is not accurate. You know, we're going to get sued for libel." Right. That is a conversation they'd have. Right. But I don't like your story because the subject doesn't like it, even though it's true. Is mm. different, and and so there's a real attempt to say no. There are real firelines. Some, mm. some of these in the modern world have gotten um, blurred. Yeah. But there's still this kind of a line of you don't let the subject of your article dictate the content of your story. Yeah. That's a kind of an ethical line you don't cross. But isn't that what, like especially in the case of uh, government, isn't that what governments try to do? I mean, I, I'm a great fan of the West Wing. And, yes. you know, most of the people that I know who have ever watched the show, whether they consider themselves politically liberal or politically conservative, if they like, if they're a political junkie, they love the West Wing. And one of the things that is as clear as can possibly be uh, in in the show is the effort of the White House to spin information in in their own favor. So they'll meet with people from the press corps and they'll try to spin a story before it gets out of control, and all these things happen. So isn't isn't that an uh, isn't that an actual concerted effort on behalf of organizations, businesses that have PR teams? I mean, do you think the Exxon company tried to spin the Valdez story at oh, some sure. point? I mean, time spent, yeah. uh, so it, it does seem to me that the the temptation for, for a reporter, the challenge maybe for a reporter, is to get enough sources outside of the spin yes, yeah. to try to stop the spin enough so that everybody can figure out what the facts are. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when you report a story someone doesn't like, they're going to give you... You have to, I mean, you're a reporter, you're always thinking, am I not reporting on this person because I don't like them? How is my own mm-hmm. biases? You know, I know things about people that, as a reporter, that I think, do I want to write a story because I don't like this person? I'll feel good about, you know, catching them doing bad things. Right, right. So you have to, you have to keep watching on that. But there, that's, you have to be scrupulous about your facts. But people are going to try and spin what those things mean, and you need to recall that, but you can also say, what this person said is not true. Yeah. Now it's weird to be reporting on your own raid. Yeah. Uh, but it is. It is. Uh, it's actually really clear in this new this new interview they've done that the people from all of that are pretty much running it now. Like it's a free independent newsroom, but we're, we're you know yeah we're all in. It's not accurate. There's stuff. There's a. Um, well, that's kind of been the thing about that organization yes, all yes. along, hasn't it? That. The, the influence of the guy at the top controls everything in the in the company. I mean, if you go to some of the early reporting about the school, about the organ, about him in South yes. Korea. I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's a very, very. I mean, if cultish is too strong a word, it's a very highly influenced. Uh, it's a sect, I would say. Okay, all right, but but there is a there is a question: Is there a cult of personality around the leader? Yeah. Um, but so, it, yeah. uh, next week, this is a short edition, next week uh, we're going to have a guest, and I'm really excited about this actually. Uh, I, I saw maybe a year ago the, uh, a chart called the Media Bias Chart, where someone had taken it upon themselves to create a chart 
and to put uh, a lot of the major news organizations, news outlets yeah. on there and try to measure both accuracy and political tilt mm -hmm. in a single chart. And that probably, I don't know, there were maybe 15 or 20 of the major news organizations on there. And, um, I mean, it seems to be roundly received as generally accurate. I mean, everybody would say, well, I would move this one to there. I would move NPR to here. I'd move the Atlantic to there. But nobody looked at it and said, oh, this is hogwash. Yes, yeah. And then about a month or so ago, I saw an updated version that may have as many as 40 different. Yeah, I, saw that. I mean, it's an enormous number uh, of news or media outlets, I guess is probably the closest because it, it really does include some that aren't as prominent. I think yes. Jezebel is on there. Yeah. And so there's some that are not as prominent, but they are prominent in the discussion of content that's shared on social media. Yes, yes. And so it's called the Media Bias Chart. And the, uh, the lady who founded and maintains it is named Vanessa Otero. And she's going to be our guest next week. And we're going to be talking about her Media Bias Chart. Awesome. So if you listen to this in advance, you can go to MediaBiasChart.org. Uh, I think, and it will redirect over to her blog, and uh, and you can look at it there. And it's it's re really interesting, and we'll have Vanessa on next week. She'll be uh, live from somewhere in Colorado. I'm not sure where, but she's a patent attorney, and so she's a smart Colorado. Smart lady. Yeah, yeah. Colorado. It's Colorado. There is no. It's not, an o, it's not an omega at the end. It's the same O as at the other two places. It's Colorado. not, it's not Colorado. It's Colorado. 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 All the O's ah, sound the same. Ah, Colorado. Yeah, just like, just like Colorado. that. Colorado. There's not an H at the end either. It, nor is there an exclamation point that sets it off as Look, an exclamation. Oh Folks, I apologize. I apologize for, for Bob's... Lack of ability to pronounce the, uh, the United States, but we will. Uh, in fact, we'll ask Vanessa. We'll ask, we'll ask Vanessa. her how you say that word. Yeah. We'll ask her how she says it. We'll ask her how uh, Coloradans, or as Bob would say, Coloradoans, who uh, who live in the state, who are native to the state, pronounce it. Have you been to Colorado? I have. I have been there too. I have been there, but I didn't ask anybody how they pronounce the state. They just welcomed me to Colorado. You know, I went there. You know what? I got to tell you the story. Uh, my runner of fame. I met Mark Hamill. I met Luke Skywalker on my way to Colorado. Oh my golly! He is so funny on Twitter. He is. He is so funny on Twitter. He did the which Star Wars character are you thing <laughs> and published that he was uh, Jabba the Hutt. So anyway, that's awesome. Hey, you can follow me uh, at Marty Duran. You can follow Bob at Bob Smetana. That's S-M-I-E-T-A-N-A. Or you can follow the podcast at T4E Podcast on Twitter. We don't have a Facebook page yet. We probably should do that at some yeah. point soon. Uh, and if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, that would help. Uh, it helps, I think, when you hit 50, and we've got, I don't know, maybe a dozen or 15, something like that. So if you could do that and help us get up to 50 ratings, that'd be awesome. Until uh, the next time, this is Marty Duran. And this is Bob Smetana. Helping you think about the news. This is the Fourth State Podcast. Mm -hmm.